Boom, how we doing beautiful people? Boy, have I got a good one lined up for you today. My guest is someone very special, super honored to have him on today. And this one's for all of the business owners out there. This one's for all the entrepreneurs. This one's for anyone interested in business. Uh, we have a, a very, very special guest coming on. So I'm really, really excited to share him with you. Now, this guy is widely recognized as an internet marketing pioneer, one of the world's top experts on business strategy, who's coached some of the world's top online business gurus. He's increased revenues by billions of dollars. He's grown three of his businesses or more past seven figures a year. He's the Don, the Don of online marketing, and, uh, and he is definitely one of a kind. He'll be joining us very shortly. So I cannot wait to introduce him to you. And we'll just wait for him to click on and then we will get started. Welcome everyone, let me know where you're from. Let me know who you are, where you're from before I introduce our guest. Welcome everyone, welcome, welcome. So again, this one's for all the entrepreneurs. So, Rich, how you get on? There should be a button that comes up and says join, ask to join, and then click join. Sheffron, and he is joining us right now. How are you, my friend? Very good. Awesome. Can you awesome. hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Cool. Excellent. Well, again, I just did a bit of a rev up and intro, and uh, I just mentioned that you are the Don of online marketing, and uh, man, I'm really excited to have you on the IG Live today, so thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, man. Totally my awesome. pleasure. So, look, why don't we start at the start, and if you could just tell me and, and all the listeners right now, you know, where did your passion for entrepreneurship sort of come from or stem from? Jeez, uh, I guess, it, you know, I grew up in an affluent neighborhood. Uh, where most of the dads, I guess, had their own businesses. So I guess it, you could say it started with that. Um, the, but I was always very, I was very like, um, I guess when I was young, I always wanted to have more money. Um, I, that changed as I got older, but when I was younger, that certainly was the case. And so I had my own like newspaper route. Uh, I had, uh, you know, I shoveled driveways like in the winter time to make extra money. Then, uh, then I started becoming a little bit more entrepreneurial. I, uh, uh, I went to a concert like in Madison Square Garden and it was someone I really liked. I don't even remember. And I waited, I got there really early and I met someone else that got there really early. And we noticed that most of the people waiting online were fans like us and they weren't buying the maximum number of tickets that they could. Um, and back then it was first come first serve. Like if you were number one in line, you were the first person to buy tickets. And, um, mm -hmm. so we decided to start doing that, like to make extra money. This guy was like in his mid twenties. I was probably like 13 or 14, but, um, we would pay for people's tickets if they would buy the maximum number of tickets. Right. And so, uh, and then we would quickly sell that to a ticket broker, like, you know, and make a couple grand in a weekend or, you know, and it was pretty cool. And uh, from there, it just kind of evolved. And I was, uh, my life kind of, my childhood was kind of crazy. My dad was a, uh, was a ruthless business guy, like a sociopath uh, who even screwed me in deals. So that was very interesting. <laughs> and then uh, I just had a very mixed kind of life where um, early on, I, uh, like I ran away from home and I got the chance to hang out. Like I was like a gopher for these mob guys that were uh, in the book Wise Guys, but not in the movie Goodfellas, which was based on Wise Guys. Uh, mm -hmm. These guys were in the book though. They fixed horse races by paying five of the eight horses not to come in first, second or third. And um, so that was an interesting part of my childhood. Then when I decided to kind of, go more on the straight and narrow. Um, my first after school job was when I was 16 was at a place called Investor Center, which was the first brokerage firm that 
Jordan Belford got his start at. And wow. so I knew Jordan really well back then. Um, the, the Wolf of Wall Street doesn't really project an accurate story. There was no guy in the beginning that like was something on his chest. Um, Jordan owned a meatpacking business that went bankrupt. And then his very first job was what was supposed to be that strip mall, but it was actually in an office building. Um, but he was that good and everyone did stand around him and uh, he could close in one call, but he was another sociopath that I met along my journeys. Uh, decided that that was a very sleazy business, kind of turned me off to a lot of stuff uh, in that world. Um, and then graduated from high school, went to college, studied accounting. Uh, I ended up getting a lot of scholarships from Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting, which now is Accenture. And worked for them in my summers and then got an offer from them to work anywhere in the world in any division. And I decided to take a year off from school my junior year and uh, worked for them full time for a year to, to spend time in all the different divisions. And the division I liked most was strategic services, which was like Accenture's or Anderson Consulting's equivalent or Arthur Anderson, uh, equivalent to McKinsey like their elite level. And uh, that's what I really enjoyed. That gave me a really great education on business. And uh, then went back to school, uh, studying accounting. And then in my senior, like senior year, second semester, I dropped out of college, like uh, with just, you know, uh, a couple months left because my dad owned a store that he was going to close. It wasn't his primary business. He was going to close because he was losing money in it and the lease was running out. And so there were six more months until the lease ran out. And I offered him a deal, which was let me take it for the last six months. If I can turn it around, we'll renew the lease. I'll compensate you for anything that you lost from the day I took over. Um, and we'll be 50-50 partners from that point forward. And so he agreed he had nothing to lose. And... Uh, I came in, totally changed the store and got it profitable within six months and then extremely profitable. And then that grew into a bunch of other things that got me into the music business. So I was in the clothing business and the music business. We started a record label. And um, after a couple more years, I decided I didn't want to be in a family business. And uh, I guess so I took a year off. And during that year off, I um just was kind of exploring different things i read an article in time out magazine i lived in manhattan at the time uh, about this hypnotist julie flanders and i'd never been hypnotized so i wanted to experience what that would be like and so i made an appointment for a hypnosis session and uh lo and behold i was highly hypnotizable so it was like pretty profound experience and that made me want to learn more and do it more and as i learned more and also did more with it, um, I decided that's what I wanted my next business to be. And mm -hmm. that business was very much a direct response driven business, which was very different than fashion and music, which was much more image than anything else. So while I thought I knew a lot about marketing and advertising, um, I really didn't when it came time to actually like stimulate an action right now. And what I found was that the more I liked an ad, the cooler I thought it was, the slicker I thought it was, the worse it did, the cheesier it was, the more embarrassed I was that it was my ad, um, the better it did. And then that started me learning direct response. And direct response ultimately is what got me to want to get online. And so that kind of, I know I went through a lot there, but... Um, yeah. But, yeah, I've always been fascinated by why people do what they do. I've been fascinated by um, which, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what makes someone an entrepreneur from a consumer standpoint, what gets someone to buy. Um, but I'd say that uh, for me, probably the need for autonomy is probably my number one reason for being an entrepreneur at the end of the day that like, I am really good when I'm pursuing something that interest me and I'm passionate about and I'm not that good when I'm not. And uh, so having that flexibility to choose, I think is critical. And the easiest way to have that is to be an entrepreneur that works for yourself. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're right, there's a lot there, but I think it's so important that everyone knows that journey because, you know, one, one of the things that's so incredible about you and different about you is that you've had the experience of going through bricks and mortar and, you know, retail and all these different aspects, not just coming in and doing online. Right. Of, you learned the challenging way and you've had your ups and downs in business. And, and that's why I believe you relate to so many different people, which is incredible. Just a quick question on your past and the challenges. Mm -hmm. of past. Do you think that your experience, I guess, in the, the underworld or in, in those areas, and then also um, through challenging times with your, your family and, and, and those rough moments, do you think mm -hmm. that makes you a, a, a better entrepreneur? because of the, the different insights that you've gathered from the different worlds? Sure, I would say so. I mean, the, yeah, no doubt. Like, the, like what I learned from, I guess, uh, the mob, it was just that there's always an angle, like even if it's not obvious. Um, like, you know, you wouldn't think to fix a race by paying people not to win, you, you know, but like, that's the only way that it makes sense. And it's the only way that you can prevent the people that are going to win from knowing and betting on themselves. Um, the, I'd say that the probably the biggest thing though, for me as an entrepreneur, um, was that my hypnosis centers grew really fast. We grew from like, we grew from zero to about 13 and a half million in like four years. And at that point, I had had success, you know, in the fashion industry, in the music industry, and now I had like the most successful hypnosis operation that ever existed. And then 9-11 happened and we lost our phone lines and we primarily advertised in the daily news. And now like the first 30 pages were no ads and it was just all death and destruction. And so we really uh, took many steps backwards. And up until that point, I had never had anything that I couldn't make work. And mm. so I threw a lot of good money after bad money, uh, trying to turn the thing around when I should have um, cut my, you know, cut my losses early. And so two things from that. One was um, that, you know, I ended up like throwing a lot of good money into it. And so by the time, and I got screwed by partners and all kinds of stuff. Um, so by the time I got out of that, I had like 200 grand left, which for me was not very much comparatively to what I had before. And I had just had a new baby, like my, my wife at that time didn't work. So like I had to figure out what, you know, the next step was, but I'd say that making it a second time, losing most and then making it again in a totally different field is probably the single biggest thing that made me that makes me confident and effective as an entrepreneur because you know when it's the, the having no fear about like you know shit hitting the fan i guess uh allows you to make what is the right choice even if it's a scary choice mm, mm, absolutely absolutely and i'm sure look i think the state of business in a lot of places right now, you know, people are going yeah. through similar situations as you did through through 9-11. And I'm sure you're seeing sort of a lot of that in the retail space. Or, oh, retail's kind of screwed. Yeah. Yeah. But me personally, I, I run a, a gym franchise here in Australia. And so we were shut for a year. And we're just sort of reaching back right now. And so it's been a challenging time for, for everyone. Just on that point, you know, when you went through that moment of, you know, everything in chaos so to speak what how did you get through that mentally and emotionally and, and how could you share some of that with the the listeners yeah i mean well that's it my dad invested in that business and he screwed me over in that business and so when it was over um i had a lot of rage like mm. so much so that actually um we you know i had to sell my apartment uh, and we relocated down to Florida, um, where I could rent a place like, you know, with my new baby and my wife and the, and so I went to see a psychologist for like six months because I didn't like who I became like that rage inside me, um, started expressing it, itself as being someone who lost their temper easily, like, you know, had anger, you know, just angry, um, which was not my normal nature at all. And so I went for 
therapy for like six months just to work out that rage. Um, then, so I got that out of the way. But I would also say that, like, I made a big mistake when I first got online because my experience of my last several months offline um, was really a grind because we had at, you know, at our peak, and I don't remember, like, how we cut it down, but at our peak, we had over 60 full-time hypnotists and my staff was well over 100. And so because I didn't fire quick enough and do all those kinds of things, uh, my life very much came to be about making payroll every two weeks mm. and, you know, watching the bank account go up and up and up and then go all the way down and then go up and up and up and then go all the way down. And so when I got online, I really was anti-employee, which really kind of set me down the wrong path for about uh, two years. I think that, you know, what is challenging for a lot of offline entrepreneurs when they get online is the amount of possibility like that surrounds them um you know the and then that all each of those possibilities has a learning curve attached to it and so like when i had my retail store like there were only so many people in a geographic area i could attract there were only so many ways to do that um like it when you go online there's an infinite number of ways and this creates challenges for a lot of offline entrepreneurs that become online entrepreneurs because they get spread very thin like looking at all the opportunity mm, mm. yeah absolutely um i would say for me personally like as a human being um i like I went through a midlife crisis when I hit 40. And that was primarily because like all the goals that I had set for myself, I had achieved way before I was 40. And I thought I'd be happy by achieving those goals. And I found that I wasn't happy. And so now that kind of created a crisis because like, what do I do? Like, you know, now that I've achieved these things that I thought was gonna make me happy and I'm not. And, you know, it's not about like, oh, maybe I just need bigger things because it was clear that it had nothing like that. It just wasn't gonna come from there. Um, which really changed me pretty dramatically, I guess, like, you know, about 10 years ago. The, um, one of the things that I recognized from that experience, well, one, there's a couple things, but one thing was that I learned this model like uh, uh, do be have, right? Um, or have to be, or, you know, however you want to parse those three words. And um, what I realized was that um, the losers and dreamers in life follow like a have, do, be model like if i had certain things if i had this secret or if i had you know if i knew this person or if i whatever then i would do certain things right and then i'd be a certain way um that's a loser philosophy because you just end up waiting around like wishing and hoping that someone's going to drop some magic resources in your lap um i followed a do have be model which is effective for achievement right? You do certain things, right? And by doing certain things, you get certain things, and then you'll be a certain way. And um, made sense to me, at least. And that was the model I followed. And fortunately, it wasn't the first model, because the first model, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere, right? But what I found was, is I did those things, I got those things, but I, I wasn't being what I thought I was going to be. And so what I kind of discovered was you, like I needed to follow more of a be, do, have model. Like I need to be what I want to be, doing what I need, want to do to have what I want to get. But like it starts much more on the being side. And so when I started to kind of deconstruct um, when did I feel best? Like, you know, when was I happiest? When, uh, what I realized was that it was when I was in pursuit of something, anything, it just, 
you know, it was the pursuit, not the whether I ever got it or not. Just, you know, it's like the alignment that happened in my life whenever I was pursuing something is when I felt most alive. And so to me then, like the way I looked at goals changed because no longer were goals like, goals were really clear to me at, after that. Like goals were just something to get me motivated. And if my goals didn't get me motivated, then the whole purpose of a goal was useless. Like, so, you know, the idea in the way I look at things is that like, if someone comes to me, not that someone's coming to me for this, but, uh, and said like, I'm just not motivated to achieve my goals. I would say, well, then you don't have the right goals because it's not about the achieving of it. It's about the fuel that it gives you right now. And it either does or it doesn't. And so uh, that's kind of how I live my life these days. Um, and, you know, being clear about a vision that I have and a pursuit that I'm trying to make happen in the world. And for me, that has led to a fulfilling life, like, you know, um recognizing that yeah it, it, like the outcome is kind of irrelevant but i need that feeling of pursuit mm. you know in any yeah. act, really i mean that's it's huge and I, and i think it's so true you know i guess getting clear on who you need to be but then the doing part you're earning that confidence to be more of that that vision character that you're sort of trying to grow into is part of that process for you having mass awareness and getting very clear writing down what B looks like, like the characteristics or the, like, how do you determine that and, and sort of benchmark success in the B quadrant? I really like who I need to be is in pursuit. Like, mm. you know, another thing like that I realized, not that I realized um, that someone pointed out to me, um, so there are all these models of like human development, right? And there's a bunch of models that go beyond what Maslow did, like with self-actualization, right? There's higher levels, right? Mm. And like one area of study is called spiral dynamics that is based on that, which is based on the work of Claire Graves, um, who had these different levels, right? And I don't really remember that much of that. Um, but what I do remember of it was that I was like one below like the highest level, but it doesn't matter like that kind of thing. Or maybe I was two below. I don't even remember. But what I do remember is I was asking a guy who was an expert in this kind of model. And I was like, so what do you get from that? Like, what do you know now that you know this about me? Right. And uh, and he was like that you're focused on fi figuring out who you are and you'll never find that answer because who you are is who you need to be in any given situation. Right. So you're trying to find a thing that does not exist. There is no you. There is many you's and whatever you like, whatever the context pulls forth from you will define you in that moment. So until you kind of really like embody that, your pursuit mm. and trying to figure out who you are is useless. Like it's mm. just a waste of time. Um, and so that being in pursuit is like all I need. Like I either am or I'm not. I'm either waking up in the morning like excited about something I'm doing that day or I'm not. And mm. when I'm not, then I'm not in pursuit. And so it's pretty clear that something needs some kind of adjustment. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. And I, and I guess you're right. Once you are putting yourself in those situations and at the different levels and different intensity of those challenges and situations, who you be within that will evolve and, and change and shift and hopefully elevate as you mature and exactly build journey, right? Yeah, exactly. So just mm -hmm. being in pursuit will because I'm not in pursuit of stupid things, right? Like, I mean, I'm 50 years old. I've kind of done that, been there, right? Like, a long time ago. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I don't need to think about, like, is this a good thing or not? Because I'm not at that stage anymore in my life. Like, you know, as far as, like, 
anything that I'm going to pursue embedded within it is positivity of some sort. Mm. Uh, ideally, not just for myself, but for others as well. And that, you know, I studied a lot of uh, like transformational stuff when I was going through my midlife crisis. And um, I ended up becoming a huge fan of Warner Earhart, uh, who founded Est and then Landmark and just like a ton of different stuff. And he had this whole like little area of his teaching, for lack of a better way of describing it, which was basically that who you are right now is not who you are. It's just how you wound up being. That's it. Just how you wound up being based on everything that's occurred and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And that when we look at someone that's great, we often kind of discount our own ability in looking at that person and being like, that person's great, right? Like we're not that. Mm -hmm. When more often than not, maybe not always, but more often than not, um, that person was like everyone else until that person latched on to a purpose that they were committed to that was bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And when that concept was described to me, it was like, this is how my mind filtered it. Um, that like, if my end all be all motivation is to get certain things for myself, mm -hmm. right? Like if, if self-interest is at the highest level for me, then anytime I don't feel like doing something, I have the ability to give myself the right not to do it because like at the end of the day, I'm just doing it for myself. So mm -hmm. like, you know, if myself doesn't feel like doing it, then maybe it's right. Like, whereas um, if it's for others, like now my feelings are less important, like how I feel today kind of thing. And so like, I imagine there were many times in my past where I woke up, didn't feel great. So just decided not to work that day, right? Like, you know, whereas I'm sure Martin Luther King, not, you know, like Martin Luther King woke up many days, probably not feeling great, but it didn't really matter how he felt because he was committed to a cause that was bigger than himself, mm -hmm. right? So for me, like, it, it's not as strong as what, you know, Martin Luther King's was, and I'm nowhere near as great. Um, but he, uh, but for me, like, I was deprived of certain things, like I felt like at, in, as a kid, it's probably why autonomy is so important to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so I try to give that to other people. And so that's my bigger purpose, right? To give people the freedom to live their life the way that they want to, not necessarily the way society kind of traps people into. Mm -hmm. And that is my bigger purpose that allows me to, you know, get through stuff that maybe I don't want to do, even though I'm in pursuit of something bigger that I do want. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was transformational for me that, you know, and it's not it took me a while because like it's one thing to know that. Right. Like that. OK, I need to find a cause bigger than myself that I can really commit to. It's another thing for that commitment to really shine through in your day to day life as you live your life. Like it really is a commitment, not just mm -hmm. something that would be nice to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That resonates a lot with me because, again, that's exactly why I'm in the business that I'm in, in regards to health and fitness and mindset. It's because of that mission to share how I change my life in order to help others change theirs. And I know all my business partners and franchisees are sort of in that same mentality. And you're right. It pushes you to places that you often wouldn't go. Like, again, we're often driven by comfort or, you know, wanting to avoid uncomfortable. But if that why or that mission you know, is, is grand enough, it can push you to do things and, and or, or bring you to do things that often people won't do. And that resonates a lot with me. I love that. Just a, a question on, I guess, you know, bricks and mortar and, and mm -hmm. people across the world right now. So, you know, post COVID in Australia, or, although there's still lockdowns happening, I think are you in lockdown at the moment? Or are you? Are you off I'm in Florida. So we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moving to Florida right now. Yeah, a lot of people are. 
Yeah. Yeah. So in regards to the to the business owners offline that are challenged by what's happening, because I know online's had probably the best time ever through this yeah. period. <laughs> but the, the offline entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of them are now post-COVID rebuilding businesses, but they're paying, you know, twice the amount of overheads because it's a backlog of last year, etc. What would you say to those entrepreneurs? I know it's a bit of a, a large question, but, you know, what advice or what would you say to those entrepreneurs to move forward? Well, what I would say, you know, it really depends on the type of offline business, right? Um, the you know, one of the things that the internet did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. um, as far as retailing went, and it's now even, I'd say, kind of more than just retailing, is that um, before the internet, like proximity reigned supreme. Like now that once the internet was kind of entrenched, relevancy reigned supreme. And mm -hmm. so what I mean by that is, is proximity, you know, distance. Like we did business with people more or less that were around us. Um, and so like, if I wanted to pick up, if I wanted to start boxing, right? Like I would just go to my local sporting goods store, buy a pair of boxing gloves and start boxing, right? Like that's um, with, the internet, right? I can go online and find like boxing gloves for 50. I guess Siri is that's my watch. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, but when it, but with the online world, right? Like instead of just going to my local uh, sporting goods store, I can do a search for the best gloves for a 50 year old that doesn't know a thing about boxing that wants to start. Right. And maybe those are totally different gloves, but like I will find things that are much more relevant. Right. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk used to speak at all my events like years and years ago. Right. When he was first starting out and he said something to uh, like one time he was on stage at one of my events, like, telling people like, you know, about the opportunities that the internet has. And he's like, I don't care if you live in your parents' basement, you hate people and you only wear green socks. There are other people in the, there are 6 billion people on this planet. Like there are other people that hate their parents that live in the basement and, or, and only wear green socks. And you could be their leader and you could, you know, and, it might be silly, but there's so much truth to that. So offline businesses have to kind of recognize that more and more things are more and more areas of life are um, re relevancy is trumping proximity, right? Like and in fitness, even now you're seeing like the rise of Peloton and like, you know, these kinds of things. It's like, you know, I just want to ride my bike and get the best instructors. Like, so like there's a service for that. Right. Like, and you know, you're seeing that now and now with like more, they kind of perfected the model and now there's a bunch of other people knocking them off from like boxing ones that are like to all kinds of things. Right. So the first thing for an offline business to really get, if they can is to try and figure out who is who are they most relevant to mm. like and they, they might you know and it might be in their geographic area it might not be and if it's not like if they if there's a much bigger audience they really need to start considering having an online component to their business because it ain't going backwards like it's only going to continue um you know more and more people have grown accustomed now to buying stuff online doesn't mean that you know people won't spend money offline it's just that people are more inclined now than they were before i mean some of us like myself i primarily bought stuff online anyway but now more of the population certainly has gotten to that so i'd say for one is just recognize that even if business is a little bit tough where they are like situated um if their business is unique they might have uh, they might be relevant to a whole lot of people worldwide, you know, mm. 
And so that would be the first thing. The next thing would be that like people go online, one for entertainment, two for information. And so for every business nowadays, they need to kind of recognize that their customers are online looking for information. Mm. And so there needs to like, ideally, like you have a lot more um, safety and security, like if you have a information side that feeds your business, because, you know, people are going online to find information. And if they find your information, uh, they're more likely to come to you specifically. And, you know, when I was in uh, the offline world, I always tried to be very clear about like, where's my advantage, yeah. right? So like when I took over the clothing store that was failing, um, my advantage was because I was competing against the biggest retailers in the world and the most successful because we were on Broadway in Manhattan, um, wow. downtown. So the, the only place that I could have an advantage was in like clothing for like club kids and kids that went out because that's who I was at that moment. And, um, and no one else was catering to that group. And I was a part of that group. So I knew what was cool and what wasn't and, you know, could start building a store around that like persona of a customer or avatar. And, and it was successful. And that's what led me into the music business because, um, you know, first we were selling all the clothes. We made the environment look like that. Then we were the first store to, I think, have DJs in the store. Then we started licensing the music that the DJs were playing and that sold really well. And because that sold really well, then we built a recording studio in the store because it was a big store. Um, and then like the next thing I knew is I had a techno music label. Um, so the, um, I always try like with the hypnosis, like I recognized pretty early on that I was not going to be the world's best hypnotist. That was not, that's not who I am. Um, but that my business skill was superior to anyone else that was in hypnosis at that time. So my strength in that was not like I built a business where everyone else I was dealing competing. I wasn't competing against anyone, but if I was competing against someone, they were a solo practitioner that could only spend very little on advertising because they're the only ones that could satisfy the demand that they create from advertising. They were busy advertising hypnosis. I was busy advertising solutions to problems. Um, you know, so it's just totally different. And, you know, even when I got online, like the first couple of years, I really struggled to kind of find my spot. Then I finally started making good money, like selling eBooks and stuff like that. And it, but I wanted to work with other business owners and stuff like that because I enjoyed it and I was helping some of my friends, but I didn't really think that I had anything like backstory to make it work because it didn't occur to me that I could use my offline success as like a credibility tool for online success. Right. And, you know, so, but, over time, I did realize that. And I realized that I had that and most people didn't have that that were online. And so, um, so then I leveraged that to my advantage. And so my point in all of those is, is that in, you know, when I work with entrepreneurs, one of the things that we got is like, I share a lot of the ways that I look at things, right? Because they've worked for me and they've worked for a lot of people. And so one of the things is like, I had this client, his name was Giancarlo, and he was a, like, a top-ranked world, like, in the world in tennis. Like, mm. I, don't, you know, I don't know where he was. He wasn't in the top 10, but certainly, you know, much higher than I would be. Yeah. Um, and um, so I would be a fool mm. to play tennis against him for money. Like, I'd just be a fool. He'd kill me, right? Like, if I'm going to play a game for money with him, then it's gonna be a game that I'm good at, right? Mm -hmm. Like not a game that I suck at and he's great at, or I'm okay at and he's great at. Um, so business is the single biggest bet for money you're ever gonna make in your life, period. Mm -hmm. And like, just like you wouldn't play a game for money 
that you didn't have an advantage in. You shouldn't, you certainly shouldn't be like the biggest bet of your life have no advantage in, which is your business. Mm. So part of the entrepreneur's job is to figure out where that advantage lies, right? And to move the business in that direction mm. uh, and figure out who that makes you the most relevant choice for, mm. you know, because like, I believe that any well-run business should be the best solution for some group of people, period, mm. right? You know, um, and a argument, an argument should be able to be made for that. And, you know, because the, like, I tell my clients that if your business relies on finding the stupid people in your market, that's not a winning business model. Like you're not like long-term, it ain't going to work. Like you really need to be the best choice for some group of people. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the internet is like, if you plug into that side, you know, those people could be anywhere in the world. You know, I really got my start, uh, like, as far as being known and helping a lot of people and stuff like that is when I, you know, as a business coach, I worked with this one company, Agora Publishing, and I've been working with them for 17 years and helped them grow from like over 100 million. You know, they were at around a, between 100 and 200 million. I helped them grow to 2 billion. Um, the... the there has to be that i've lost my train of thought for a second um sorry um yeah i think that point sorry. of difference yeah the point of difference right so it's like what's going to separate you in the marketplace like what's gonna yeah what's gonna oh right right yeah so what i was going to say was sorry i uh i that was agora right but uh back then i was coaching entrepreneurs right mm. on how to grow their online businesses but there weren't very many people that wanted that. Uh, most people at that time thought they just needed to learn more marketing and that's it. Yeah. And so I had this coaching program and in that coaching program were a lot of names that people would, might recognize like Ryan Dice of Digital Marketer, Russell Brunson of ClickFunnels, Mike Filsame, Todd Brown. Like, you know, there's a, like a list of like 70 gurus. Um, most of them came at the very beginning and, but, most other people in the market were not interested in it. And I wrote a report because I had this project with Agora coming up in three months and I had just finished the coaching program that those guys were all in. And I didn't really have anything to do for the next three months. Mm. And so I wrote this report, just like hoping to get a dozen clients. Um, and that report was called the Internet Business Manifesto and it ended up, you know, it's only 30 pages long and when it, it went viral and it was downloaded millions of times. And like within, within a week, it was started to be translated into other languages. And it was like, uh, like, and people had read it in like, I don't know, like 50 countries and a hundred countries. And it was like, holy crap. Like the biggest companies in the world couldn't get this kind of penetration. Like, 10 years yeah. earlier, like, you know, like it was insane, right? Like, and all I did was write a document, a 30 page document in Word, turn it into a PDF, put it on my blog. And the next thing I know, like a month later, I had three and a half million dollars in my bank account from people who wanted to work with me. I, I had built like a company and like that only, that can only happen online, mm. right? And people come to me now and they're like, well, I just want to write a viral report. And I'm like, well, look, if I could spin those out on demand, like mm -hmm. I like I would just write those all day long and no one would ever see me. Um, you know, what makes something go viral like that is the right message at the right time for the right people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that have to line up. But if you're just a generic run of the mill of what you do, then that's not even a possibility, right? So it's like, what makes you unique? Because everybody is unique in some way. Every business is unique in some way. And like that uniqueness, who is that best for, mm -hmm. you know? And there are like, you know, I'm, I'm still like a coach, right? But I'm a expensive one based on all the people I've coached and all the people I've helped and my own level of success and stuff like that. Now, 
you know, someone who's just starting out online, right? Um, maybe they want to be a coach, right? And, um, and let's say, you know, they've started to make some things happen for themselves, nothing of any like significant consequence, but they're, you know, they're there. Like that person could make an argument that they're a better person to coach someone brand new than I am. Like, you know, if I was in that person's shoes, I'd be like, look, yeah, like Rich Efron is great. You know, he's phenomenal. But he, you know, when he was doing this, it was a lot easier. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. Like I'm, I'm doing it right now. I can show you what works right now. Like, you know, and you know, for some beginners, like that person might be a better choice, right? Like, so, you know, my point is, is that no matter where you are and like, and no matter what your business, like there is a customer that you're best for. And if you can figure out who that is, mm. you can also make more of them appear both online, like worldwide, and also use the online world to find the ones in your geographic area to get. So, you know, if a offline retailer or, or an offline business of any sort hasn't gotten online, um, they need to make that a bigger priority. And mm. it could be in the beginning, just a small site uh, that's informational, but, you know, and then grow from there. But like, they definitely need an online presence. It's just becoming more and more pervasive in our day to day life. So true. Yeah, absolutely agree. And would you would you say that because of everything that's happened, of course, you know, now is the time for bricks and mortar businesses or really any business to reevaluate, I guess, their unique elements and sort of restructure how they're how they're going to grow and, and progress forward. I know for us personally, you know, I, I spent a lot of the time thinking about when we come out of COVID, what what offer are we going to put together that's going to be so different than before? Because, you know, again, saturated marketplace, yeah. we're challenged. How is my offer going to be so mind-blowingly different that people say, I have to choose that because it's it's clearly the fucking best. You know what I right. mean? Like, do, do you agree that that sort of mentality, especially in bricks and mortar right now, is is super necessary? And uh, I guess starting with the the market or the people like you just mentioned, then mind blowing off or down has to be reevaluated. I would say so for sure. Yeah, I definitely would say so. And I, you know, I had a lot of clients, like there were many opportunities. Most of them have kind of like now disappeared. Um, but there were many opportunities during like the beginning of COVID that really, uh, opened up a lot of opportunities, you know, like, um, um, there was this one woman who who taught kids like how to like taught art. Mm. Right. You know, and, uh, I, I started a live stream. Like I started to live stream like twice a week, like I guess starting in April or May of last year. Right. Like, cause I was bored at home. Right. But I also, recognize that most other people were bored at home. And so if I started to live stream, I could like attract a bigger audience. Mm. And so um, I did. And I was trying this, this woman showed up on a lot of my live streams. And I'm like, you have to start live streaming. If you were to start teaching your art class, like now, like, while parents mm. are stuck at home with their kids, if they can get an hour reprieve, like giving them a taste of this stuff live, like, Facebook will find other people to watch it because they want people on the platform. They're like, they're incentivized, right? She finally did and it made a difference. Like, you know, so there were all these kinds of opportunities then and also advertising costs plummeted for a good while. Um, you know, but the online world changes all the time, right? And yeah, they definitely have to re-strategize for sure. And, uh, and also kind of, figure like i don't think anyone knows yet like what the new norm like the new normal is um you know how long will it take for most people to feel comfortable mm. you know i don't know if most people are or not like at this moment um i know that like it seems like i live in florida right like here it seems like it's almost over like the governor passed a law that doesn't even allow local communities to pass laws about like wearing a face mask or anything like that. Um, but then like, I talked to people who are in Canada 
and they're still in like total lockdown, you know? Um, and some of them are like, if this lasts another month, I'm moving down to Florida, I'll be your neighbor. And then other ones are scared themselves and just staying in until, you know, and I don't know which is the more prevalent. I know like, I, you know, I don't automatically assume that just because I believe that it should be over that the rest of the world does. Um, so you got to kind of know your target market because that's going to play a big role. Like, you know, if people are people comfortable going back into a gym, some people are obviously, but like are the majority, right? Like, cause that's what, you know, um, mm. so there's that. And I think that the, the other thing I would say though, is that one thing that is a trend that will always continue for the most part, um, is that the cost to acquire a new customer is not going down. It's going up and it will continue to go up, which means that it's in a business's best interest to have that customer for as long of a period of time as possible, right? Mm. Because the longer you have that customer, generally, the more that customer is worth, yes. right? And so in direct response marketing, there's something called latency, right? And that's the time between actions or purchases or whatever, right? So if you're someone, let's say you're a barber and you cut someone's hair and they come in every month, like they come in every 30 days, right? And I ask that barber, like how many customers that they, they have? Like, what's the right answer? Is it everyone that they've ever done business with? Is that their customer base? Is it... You know, is it the people that have come in in the last 30 days? Like, you know, like, what is it? And like, understanding latency lets you know, like when a customer is still a customer and when they're trending to no longer be a customer, right? Like on day 31, if I don't show up at my barber, I might have found a new barber, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and each progressive day that goes forward from that without me coming back in, I'm less and less likely to come in, right? Mm -hmm. So latency is incredibly important uh, from a standpoint of taking corrective action. So mm -hmm. understanding latency is incredibly important between purchases. So like a barber or a hairdresser or whatever might be 30 days. If you are, if you sell cars, it might be three years. It might be five years. It depends on the car that you sell. Right. But, um, but there's a latency and understanding latency understanding like when someone is still trending to be a customer, when they're trending to no longer be a customer, because if you can catch them and get them back on track, uh, mm -hmm. they then will perform like normal. So a, like a two-time customer is twice as likely to buy from you than a one-time customer, right? You know, and a three-time customer that's bought from you three times is like three times as likely to buy from you again uh, mm -hmm. than a one-time customer. So anytime that someone is trending off and you get them back on track by incentives or whatever, right, um, the better off you are. And, right, the ideal scenario is if you can get it on a subscription basis, yes. which more and more things are moving towards too, right? Like I used to buy an iPhone like every time, like, you know, once every two years or something. And, and then, you know, Apple introduced their Apple finance program where there's no interest and you, they just break the payments into 24 months. And after 12 months, you can just hand it back in and get a new one. Mm -hmm. So basically they've converted me to someone who pays them every month. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and it works for me because I never sold any of my old phones. So like I'm, I'm spending less anyway. And I like, what do I have a need for all these old phones that I have? Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's been some barber shops here in the U.S. that have moved to subscription-based. You pay a monthly fee, um, you know, because then the onus, you've rem whereas the onus was on the customer then to spend money, now the onus is on the customer to cancel spending money. It's a very different model, right? Um, obviously, though, people won't do that unless they're happy with the service unless they see themselves going there right like and and so uh yeah this idea of trying to move towards a forever type relationship with your customer uh critically more more important and will continue to be so 
um, just because the cost to get a new customer will increasingly go up as the cost of advertising increasingly goes up. So that's kind of the way it works. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you find that early stage business owners find it hard to get their head around spending money to acquire customers? Like, so, I mean, obviously I see marketing as such an investment. It's never an expense. You know, the more I put in, the yeah. more I get back. Do you find that's one of the beliefs or limiting beliefs that you need to challenge or break with new entrepreneurs initially to get them to start, I guess, investing more in, in customer acquisition and marketing? It depends. I mean, yes, I would say so in general, but I'd also say that, um, so when I started out, right, like I didn't have any low price products that people would buy. And then I would ask, you know, over time, like sell them more stuff until I sold them a coaching program, right? Like I went straight for the coaching program sale primarily because it was more, it was quicker to get to my outcome. And also it was simpler, like, you know, it was a lot simpler. Um, and so I, because of that, like I followed what you would call like a descension model as opposed to an ascension model, right? Like ascension model being getting someone to buy something cheap and then getting them to spend more money with you over time versus a descension model, like trying to sell them the most expensive thing. And then if they don't buy that, go to try and sell them cheaper things, right? And so I would say that um, for people just starting out, a descension model is so superior um, just because it allows for a lot of breakage and still be profitable. Nice. Um, and it's a lot hard, like most people don't realize how difficult it is to mm. sell a, it's, you know, the difference between selling a $49 product and selling a $499 product or a $4,999 product. Um, it's not 10 times harder or a hundred times harder, like depending on which number, right? Um, it's harder, but it ain't 10 times or a hundred times harder. And so to make those numbers work, therefore is a lot easier. Mm. And there, one of the draws of uh, getting online for some mm. is that it doesn't require any big upfront costs to get going because they don't have it, right? Mm -hmm. If someone does have it, um, I still recommend going downward uh, because like, you know, because uh, figuring out what your, if you can sell something high priced to a small mm -hmm. group, you can generally find things from that that you can take out and then sell something cheaper, right? And, but it doesn't, that so i would just like that's the easier route these days to follow um not all business models and not all businesses kind of apply to that right but uh there is a but that part of a market's audience the people willing to spend the most are the most desirable mm -hmm. um in general and uh and would be good for almost any business to at least have some element of their business uh, address those people. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I agree. Rich, we're almost at the hour, but I've got one more question for you. Sure. That's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Ask this question at the end of interviews. If we could put you in a time machine and take you back to meet young Rich when you were a teenager, you could give yourself just one bit of quick advice to help you succeed or fast track your success. What advice would that be? If I could get myself to fully, like, truly get it, my advice would be, I'm not sure that I would, because yeah. it's kind of like, uh, you know, one of those things that it's more almost cliche-ish, but, yeah. but it has a lot of truth to it, um, is that life is an internal experience that we mistake for an external one. And that, like, 
I find that the more that I truly, you know, I, I, I'd be lying if I told you that like I live my life 100% in accordance with that, because mm. I don't. Mm. But the more that I do, mm. the, the happier I am and the more free I am, right? Uh, like at the mm. end of the day, like everything's an internal experience. What, what, how we decide things, what they mean, like what, you know, there are so many assumptions that we make in our everyday life about mm. external shit, right? That then influences internal shit, not realizing that we are in control of the internal shit. And so, you know, at the end of the day, right? Like when you die, the amount of people that will attend your funeral has more to do with the weather than it does the way you lived your life, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's yeah. the truth. And yeah. so, uh, and even if a lot of people attend your funeral, like, you, you know, they still, well, if you have a funeral, right? Like they're, they're lowering you into the ground and they're throwing dirt on you and that's it. Like, and then everybody else's life moves on. And yeah. so the more that we're free of living life, like because of what anyone else thinks, which is all external, right? Or like uh, who we want to be seen as, which is all external or like, you know, or even buying things and having things, these are mm. all external, right? Um, mm. Then the happier, well, that would be the advice I'd give myself, but I don't know that I would, like, unless I knew that, like, this was the only piece of advice I was bringing back, and that's how important it was, and I, like, I'm afraid if I gave that self just in passing, I'd be like, yeah, okay, thanks, and move on, because a lot of times, like, you know, the, the full impact doesn't hit me until later, right, like, um, unless it's profound right from the get-go. And I don't find that as profound as like, I'll give you an example of another one uh, that meant a lot to me when I read it. Um, but like, I find that what I said as far as life being an internal experience that we mistake as an external one, which I didn't come up with, I read it somewhere. Um, that kind of covers a lot of other things, right? So I was, I used to, and I would say I still do this to a certain extent, but nowhere near as bad. I used to be somewhat, very much like a perfectionist. And mm -hmm. I read this book once that said, perfectionism is trying to get the world to believe something about yourself that you don't believe about yourself, mm -hmm. right? Like, so when I read that, like it hit me really hard, right? And I was like, okay, let's say that's true, right? Um, what don't I believe about myself that I'm trying to get the world to believe about myself? Well, let's look at where that perfectionism lies. That perfectionism lies in the courses I create, in content I create. And why does that, like, I want people to think I'm smart, right? Like, and so apparently something must have happened when I was a kid that made me feel like I had to prove to the world that, right? And, you know, generally, uh, well, this is, I'm going to just use my ADD brain here to go on a tangent for a second, but um, Porter Stansberry, who works at Agora as well, uh, who created a division that's about to be sold for like $3 billion. Uh, he told me something once that like the first part I knew, but the implications I never really thought about. And he said, look, we all know that people buy for emotional reasons, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, those emotional reasons never go away, mm. right? So like that emotional driver that's causing those purchases never gets resolved. Right. Like, so I've bought a lot of books in my life. Right. I'm an avid reader, like voracious. Um, I have to believe that some of that is related to the same thing that the perfectionism is. Right. You know, and yeah. if it is right, like I need to know a lot. I need to be smart. Right. Like there's no book I'm ever going to buy that's going to be like, oh, OK, now I'm done. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like it, it, it doesn't get solved that way. Right. No amount of self-help leads to self-acceptance. And so same, like, if I get that the world, like, it's just all an internal experience that we mistake as an external one, then the perfectionism is kind of an irrelevant thing to begin with. Because if you don't care about like what the world thinks, then it's kind of like, it doesn't show up. 
right? So that's why I'd say that that's the one piece of advice. Because like, if you can get the internal right, um, everything works. And when you get the internal wrong, and I've been there, like when I went through my midlife crisis, shit, everything feels like you're just climbing uphill 24 seven. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Such good advice, especially very timely advice as well, which I love. Rich, thank you so much for, for the opportunity to chat. I know everyone's going to you. Where can uh, people find you? Uh, they can find me on my site, strategicprofits.com. They can find me on uh, Instagram, which I have like a pathetically low. It's always been like an afterthought for me. So uh, they can follow me on Instagram. Um, I also do a live stream, like I said, twice a week. I do it on Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn um, and Periscope. Uh, but uh, I have, uh, and so I, you know, they can find me on any of those platforms. And um, I also have a Facebook group uh, by the name of my company, Strategic Profits. It's free. And um, I've put, I put some of the things that I've charged for in the past or things or my notes on different books or whatever uh, in that Facebook group. So the Facebook group is called Strategic Profits. And uh, as you said, my name is Rich Sheffrin. So Strategic Profits of Rich Sheffrin, either one, they'll find me on pretty much any platform. Very true. I love that, Rich. Thank you again, my friend. Really appreciate your time. And, uh, and again, keep doing what you do. Change a lot of lives and a lot of businesses. And uh, you're always up leveling. So again, thank you. Thank you. And it was nice talking to you. That's soon. Bye. Bye.